The interview you're about to hear was originally published on the Superhumanize podcast. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. We are currently witnessing a psychedelic revolution. Top universities like Johns Hopkins, Berkeley, and NYU are giving psychedelics the serious treatment. Studying the therapeutic effects of psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, ketamine, and others. We're also collectively undergoing an evolution of our perception of these substances, becoming aware of their transformative potential for healing us individually and collectively. Psychiatry may never be the same. Ketamine treatments are already legal, and psilocybin and MDMA are poised to become legal in 2023. And it's not just universities that want in. Wall Street does too. Psychedelics is the biggest boom business since marijuana. Some even say that psychedelics may help us save ourselves and the planet. Today, we're talking with Paul Austin, a 21st century pioneer in the field of the responsible use of psychedelics for healing, leadership, and personal transformation. He has been featured on the BBC and Forbes and in Rolling Stone for his accomplishments in entrepreneurship regarding social awareness of the benefits of microdosing psychedelics. Paul is the author of the book, Microdosing Psychedelics, a practical guide to upgrade your life and as the founder of two companies in the emerging psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. Paul's mission is to help steward humanity 2.0, contributing to greater individual and collective well-being by normalizing responsible psychedelic use. This interview was originally published on the Superhumanize podcast. Paul, I am so excited to welcome you on the Superhumanize podcast. I'm really grateful you're making time for us today. Well, thank you so much for a phenomenal introduction, both the you know context around this third wave of psychedelics and also you know mentioning the responsible use. I think that's so critical. So I'm I'm really thrilled to to be able to be on the podcast with you and talk about this this emerging field uh, of the psychedelic renaissance. Thank you so much. You're most kind. And um, first off, I would love to give the audience an overview. Uh, of your own journey. When was the first time that you got into contact with psychedelic substances and what impact did they have on you? So the origin story of, you know, working with psychedelics basically um, started with cannabis. So it's even interesting that you had mentioned, you know, psychedelics are the next big boom after cannabis, because there seems to be a uh, through line through these, through these plant medicines. So I, I grew up in a, in a home that was more traditional, you know, uh, I grew up in a place called West Michigan, Midwest, fairly religious, uh, church every Sunday. You know, there was a clear sense of morality. This was good. This was bad. And I was sheltered from the quota. One of those things happened to be cannabis um, and psychedelics. And when I was 16, I, you know, being the rebellious person that I am, 
and still continue to be in many ways. I uh, had just gotten my driver's license as, as, and as any 16 year old would do in the United States, went uh, and drove with a good friend to sort of a hippie hut in the middle of the woods. And we smoked a, a joint together or a blunt. And uh, it was really fun. We, you know, we got a little high and then enjoyed the woods and like, it was a really great experience. And so that first experience with cannabis started, got me to second guess and think again about you know, these drugs that were supposedly bad. And then a few years later, that same friend who was my best friend in high school, that same friend, we were in college at this point in time, he was a few hours away, but he was back home for like a winter break. And he's like, Hey, I have these, these mushrooms. Do you want to do some mushrooms together? And I'm like, well, if you introduced me to cannabis, that went pretty well. Let's do some mushrooms together. So we had, you know, a couple grams of mushrooms. I was 19 at the time. It was, it was interesting. I remember a deep sense of nostalgia, a deep sense of sort of the, the heart opening and emotional sort of interest, but it wasn't like profound and amazing and sort of the, the classic mystical experience that you hear about when it comes to psychedelics. That happened about five months later when I got my hands on some LSD. And so this was a beautiful May day, West Michigan. We have uh, sand dunes that are on Lake Michigan. It's like a great place to hike, go swimming. And I went out there early May day, 75 degrees and took I think a tab or two of acid and just everything opened up, felt connected with everything. Couldn't, couldn't believe sort of the beauty that I was surrounded with, was really grateful for everything that had happened. And then, uh, uh, you know, about a week after that first trip, that first experience with LSD, I went to Tanzania with a, with a group in college and we were studying, it was for a biology class. And I decided that it would be fun to take LSD with me into that trip. So I just stuck some in and then ended up taking a couple hits of LSD, one uh, on the Serengeti and one in Nagorogoro Crater. And when you're in Tanzania, especially in the Serengeti, it's very wild, extremely wild. And so you see the wildebeest, eat, wildebeest eating the grass, sun beaming down in the grass, and you see the tigers off in the distance and the cheetahs. And you sort of see how this full circle of life comes together as one. And I think it was at that moment that I sort of recognized what I would call the truth of interconnectedness, right? Like we are just part of this energetic circle. And the more that we embody from that energetic circle, the healthier we'll become. So those early psychedelic experiences then opened me up to looking into CrossFit and paleo and functional fitness and sleep and diet and sort of what are the, the maladies of modernity that keep us sick, that are toxic, and how do we clear all those out and root into something that is, I would say, evolutionary, tr evolutionarily true, right? So I love this concept of um, the, the Lindy effect. And the Lindy effect is something around the long lines of the longer something has been around, the longer it, was, it will be around because as humanity, that's what helps us to evolve. So I started to explore then what is a diet that we've been using for thousands of years? How have we been sleeping? How have we been working? How have our relationships been? And then that informed a lot of my sort of early philosophy around wellness, optimal well-being, et cetera, et cetera. Now that also coincided with the fact that I was graduating from school a couple of years later. I, I, I didn't want to pursue a more conventional path of getting my MBA or going to work in a corporate environment. And so I started to explore, well, what are ways that I can take this, this sort of insight and awareness of freedom that we experience, especially in high doses of psychedelics, this, this feeling of expansion, this feeling of uh, power, you know, full power, full agency? And how can I take that feeling and sort of integrate it into who I become, essentially? And how can I start that path now? So when I was 21, I moved to Turkey. I taught English for a year in a private school while I was teaching English. I taught myself sort of the, the range of entrepreneurial skills so I could start my own 
business. Uh, you know, I read the four hour work week, moved to Thailand, lived in Chiang Mai, built my first online business, was making money online. And then in 2015 was living in Budapest and a couple of friends had came to visit and we were dropping acid in the hills of Budapest. All, all It feels like all my best stories start with dropping acid at, at some point. So we were dropping acid in the hills of Budapest and we were reflecting on this sort of emerging trend of psychedelic. And this is six years, 2015, and how Tim Ferriss was starting to publish podcasts and medical research was coming out of Johns Hopkins and NYU and cannabis was becoming legal in more and more states. And we were like, this is clearly happening. Like psychedelics are the next thing after cannabis. And so how can we present psychedelic as a tool to integrate and not as a tool to become the other? And so that's how we came up with this idea of the third wave, the third wave of psychedelics. And that sort of then gets into the entrepreneurial path and microdose, all the other things that like. Mm, I think you said something really crucial and that's about how can we integrate and you know not become the other? I think a common cultural experience for most people so far who have uh, come in touch with certain compounds, substances, plant medicines uh, has been, especially in the 80s and the 90s and the early 00s, uh, using drugs as a means to escape ourselves, escape our pain, escape our shadow. And now there's this renaissance because, I mean, anything you can use for, uh, you know, good or bad, if you want to use these two terms. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of this dualistic kind of worldview. I think it's all side, you know, all part of one whole, however, just for ease of explaining. And I think we're at a time now where we realize and where we learn that we can use certain substances as medicines to actually really take a close look at ourselves, what's happening deep down in the recesses of our psyche and heal that stuff instead of keeping it repressed. Um, you, in an interview, in another interview, you said that you have a tattoo on your chest that says no bullshit and that you got it after using psychedelics. What, yeah. tell me about that. And what does that mean to you? Well, so we'll and we'll we'll weave this thread into what you had just brought up, which is which is an element of the the real growth and healing from psychedelics often happens by going into the shadow. So although even in my own story, I mentioned, you know, the the sort of blissful, interesting experiences, I had my fair share of even within those same blissful experiences, a deep recognition of where I where I was at fault or what wasn't working or 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 where there was friction or whatever that might be. And it's actually much easier to face that and come to terms with it within a psychedelic experience because there's an element of courage that comes with it, but it still takes, you know, Hunter Thompson had this quote, which is you buy the ticket, the take you take the ride. You still gotta <laughs> you still gotta go forward with actually going through with the experience. So yeah. in the in the end of 2018, early 2019, I went with a group down to uh, Costa Rica uh, called One Heart Retreat. And it was an ayahuasca retreat that was more around connection and creativity and leadership, right? There are many ayahuasca retreats that are focused much more on the healing elements. This was much more about connection and expansion. And I had worked with ayahuasca a little bit before that, but in a very minor way and had no sort of profound, incredible experience from it. And when I went down to Costa Rica with this group and drank ayahuasca for a week, there was a shift the second night that I drank, which was basically around the, the sense of really clear, impeccable boundary. And essentially having the discipline 
that turns into, uh, I would say, a solidified awareness that my my sense of self is essentially a temple, and that the more that I understand that and treat it as such, then um, the more clarity, the more connected, the more present that I am on a day-to-day basis. And so the, the phrase, no bullshit, essentially came from in that week of ayahuasca, I just came to recognize several things that I had basically allowed myself to get pulled back into, it might, you know, relationships, food, cannabis, whatever it was. And that was that that tattoo continues to be a reminder of the need to have extremely high standards in a world that is, I would say, um, swimming in bullshit. Oh. And, and, and what psychedelics help us do, I find, is to they, they essentially through the mystical experience, right at the at these really high doses they for many of us help us to experience love like really true unconditional love for the first time and when we have that experience our the the level of standard that we hold for ourselves in everything it just it goes up right yeah. because we realize that a key part of integration of coming back to that state of uh that that that, that state of frequency is the ability to say no and only allow into our space what feels like super aligned Oh, and this resonates so deeply with me, what you just said. Uh, You mentioned boundaries. You mentioned the temple that is the self and self-love. A lot of us, when we go through childhood, um, I mean, there's a broad range of childhoods, of course, some with horrific abuse, some with parents who tried their best, but did the best with what they have, and it still resulted in some kind of emotional injuries with the children, not out of malice. Uh, But a lot of us, um, you know, go from this childlike state where everything's possible and you love yourself in the world to this place of not loving yourself enough or even loathing yourself, of not having good boundaries and all the things that that can then lead to into life. And um, uh, in order to build a healthy foundation and grow from there, I think this is a key thing. And it sounds like such a transformative experience that you had at that retreat. Um, you mentioned your two companies and I'd like to learn a little bit. I already read about them, but I'd like for you to share with the audience a little bit more about them. Uh, Third wave is an educational platform to ensure psychedelic substances become responsively integrated into our cultural framework. And synthesis is a legal psilocybin retreat outside of Amsterdam. What does third wave stand for? It's my first question. And the second question is, what can we expect when visiting a retreat at Synthesis? Those are great questions. So little, I'm going to dip into a little bit of a history lesson because um, I love history. I ended up studying history as my undergrad. I still read a lot of history. Um, and I find history is critical as context because I'm much, much more a fan of the sense of the eternal recurrence mm. and time being circular and nonlinear. In other words, mm. patterns consistently repeat them throughout um, humanity. So uh, what's interesting about these substances and these tools is that we've been using them as humans for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, some would say tens of thousands of years, depending on which theory you're a fan of. But in, but, but to, to start with sort of this first wave of psychedelics, what I often point to is the use of kaikion, which is a beverage that's made from ergot, the, the, a fungus that grows on rye bread, the same thing that Ellis and kaikion was drank by the ancient Greeks as part of something called the Eleusinian Mysteries, where they would go to 20 
20 miles outside of Athens to a place called Eleusis in the Eleusinian fields. And that's where a bunch of rye grew and wheat grew, which is where they would cultivate the, the fungus grew on the rye. And then they would host this private ceremony, the Eleusinian Mysteries, and Plato and Aristotle and every major thinker participated in these ceremonies in ancient Greece. And what they said is that life would not be worth living without these ceremonies. And unfortunately, that happened at some point in time. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire uh, in the early 300 ADs. As part of that process, they, they essentially needed to codify a massive religious structure to maintain control of a massive populace. So they took out and removed all notions of a psychedelic sacrament because it essentially um, creates this, this process of awakening, right? And that was in, in many ways too threatening to a centralized uh, hierarchical structure. So our, 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 our sort of familiarity with the mystery Right, that was that was cultivated through those those mysteries was cut uh, and really has been um, for seventeen hundred years at the, until Albert Hoffman, who was a Swiss chemist in 1938, is trying to find a um, he's trying to find a solution to help women give childbirth a little bit easier, and he's making all these different compounds and he makes something called LSD 25, and he sees if it helps for the childbirth thing that he's trying to do. It doesn't really, so he puts it on the shelves. Like whatever. Five years later, he has this premonition, it's 1943, that, oh, maybe there was something to that. He brings it off the shelf, takes some LSD, realizes that there was, in fact, something to this, has the world's first LSD trip, what we call now now called Bicycle Day. And then from that point in time, starts getting the word out about LSD. One of the people who he talks to about it is a, is a guy named Gordon Wasson. Gordon Wasson is a VP at Chase Morgan. This is the mid-50s. He's married to a Russian mycologist. They're obsessed with mushrooms. So they go down to Oaxaca in search of the magic mushroom. They find a woman named Maria Sabina, who's a, who's, a, who's a healer down there. She provides them with the magic mushrooms. They come back. They publish this in the front page of Life magazine. Everyone now knows about ma- magic mushrooms, LSD. Timothy Leary and Ram Das, who was called Richard Elpert at that time, hear about it. They're at Harvard. They start doing research at Harvard. And then things start to spiral out of control from there. We had mm-hmm. Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead. And essentially, the, the sort of thing that happened in the 50s and 60s was we tried to keep it within a clinical framework and within a research framework. And it was like that for much of the 40s and 50s. And then as soon as word got out about how amazing this substance was, we just it, it started just to spread like wildfire. And when it kind of hopped from the clinics to the culture, it got out of control. It was tied in with the protests against the Vietnam War. And Richard Nixon knew that, okay, I can't make being a hippie illegal but I can make the drugs they use illegal. So he cracked down, cut it all off and, and all research, all use was stopped for you know 35 years, which then brought us to this third wave of psychedelics, right? And so that kicked off in 2006, research is published you know, for about 10 years. And then in 2015, I started the third wave of psychedelics and I was reflecting on what went wrong, as I mentioned before, in the second wave and how do we utilize sort of the technology that we have available to ensure that this goes well in this third wave of psychedelics, right? And what I focused on was was really, um, initially what I focused on was microdosing as sort of a leeway into the psychedelic experience. I think where they went wrong in the 60s was focusing on high doses of LSD for a lot of people. And I think what what um, what is much better as an orientation to focus on is high doses for a sm- small segment of the poppy, five to ten percent, and microdosing is a much more um, engageable way to work with these substances for a main. So I thought first, if we're doing this culturally, 
which is what the third wave of psychedelics is, a cultural renaissance. Then we focus on microdosing. And then second, what we need to say is not only then do we need to focus on microdosing, but we need to understand that people will inevitably look to do higher doses. And so we want to ensure that there is resources for them so they can do it in a responsible and intentional way. So they can prepare adequately, so they can integrate the experience, so they can find great facilitators and providers when they're going through with this experience. And so the third wave is really what I would call the premier public platform on ensuring that these substances become responsibly integrated beyond clinics and institutes, right? There's a lot of research going on in the biotech space for psilocybin, for treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, um, OCD, alcoholism, MDMA for PTSD. There's now a proliferation of other molecules and compounds and other indications as well that it's being looked at. And it's the vast majority of it is within clinics. And I wholeheartedly believe that if we're to address the existential crisis that we currently face in an adequate amount of time, that we don't it's not going to be the sick who create the new society, the new world, the new framework, the new architecture that we need in order to step into. It will be those who are in leadership positions, those who have influence, those who have power, those who have wealth. And so how do we then utilize these substances to help basically consciousness to evolve, to up-level by informing those who are creating these new structures of society? And so the huge potential, I think, is not Obviously, for mental health, it's huge. It's it's enormous. But I think the much better, the 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 much bigger potential is how does this expand what we as humans are capable of, and how does it sort of condense time to ensure that we can address sort of the systemic issues that we're facing within, you know, before we essentially burn ourselves alive or whatever else is happening at this. Absolutely, point. the healing potential is one very huge and important aspect of it, but I agree with you wholeheartedly, the elevating us, the expanding our consciousness, the plugging in into the greater, bigger picture and realizing we're a part of it, realizing we are of nature. And it's not about subjugating and dominating nature, dominating each other. That's what these substances have the potential to do. And um, it's it's uh, could be potentially a game changer for humanity. That's the hope, right? Like, like I think the hope is definitely that it will, in the short term, address the mental health crisis, which is really a symptom of a broader crisis of disconnection, of separation, right? Separation from community, separation from the self, separation from nature, right? Uh, there's so many ways that we're struggling as a result of that, and I think sort of. What people feel like is the, um, let's say, the logistical order of things over the next five to 10 to 15 years is a lot of people go, well, these are powerful compounds or powerful substances, which I wholeheartedly agree with. We need to keep them within clinics and institutions and a medical framework to start with. And then once they're integrated into our medical and clinical framework, only at that point should we make it potentially more broadly accessible so that, for example, you could go get a license from a local provider who would that go through some training. And then you know that you can go into a certain place to buy psilocybin for leadership, for creativity, for these. Yeah. However, where that hypothesis significantly falters, for better or worse, this is just how it is is it looks very likely that that decriminalization of psychedelics will outpace the clinical use of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So um, Oregon and, and Oregon has already legalized psilocybin therapy, the state of Oregon that will be available, as you said, in 2023. The FDA approval of psilocybin, it's probably looking closer to 2025 or 2026. California also has on the ballot um, 
to potentially legal or decriminalize all psychedelics by 2024. And then decriminalization of all drugs as a topic, not just psychedelics, but all drug is also, be, it, it's generating more momentum. So my personal bet is that the decriminalization of all drugs will happen at a federal level before the FDA approves psilocybin for medical conditions. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, then what we're doing with third wave, we're saying, okay, if that's the case, how do we build the decentralized infrastructure, the education, the providers, the training, all these sorts of things to ensure that as this really blossoms and grows outside of clinics, that the same mistakes aren't repeated of the past of what happened in the second wave, simply because we we can't really fuck this one up this time around because it's so critical to the existential issues that we're facing that we really need these tools to be available in responsible containers to cre- come up with innovative solutions that can actually help us to address these um, systemic issues that we that we will be facing in the next True. 10 years. Truly. And I think a big problem in the second wave was that these substances were perceived as fueling the counterculture, which of course was a great threat to the establishment. And if we have the chance to actually make them part of our culture, and like you said, help us create solutions for some of the most pressing problems we're facing today, then we really have a chance with this third wave. You mentioned something um, about the separate self, which I personally think is the root of many of the ills that we have. Alan Watts put it, in a way, you know, this, this, um, this solitary little ego kind of floating around in a hostile universe. Here we are in our meat sack and, you know, everything is kind of against us and it creates all kinds of problems, this perception. So psychedelics can help us tap into the greater, bigger picture and feel, truly feel that we're part of this. I would like to learn a little bit more, little bit more about um, synthesis, the uh, legal psilocybin retreat, as I mentioned, outside of Amsterdam that you founded. Um, what happens what, when somebody would go to this retreat? What is the usual uh, program there. Yeah. And let's, and I'm, I'll weave that into this, this story of separation, right. Um, and the ego dissolution, because that I think is central to the healing properties of psychedelics is many of these indications on the mental health side come from rigidity of something called the default mode network. Mm-hmm. And so when that's interrupted through psilocybin, it allows essentially uh, a spaciousness through which new behaviors and new ways of being can be, can be woven into, into a new sense of self. So, with synthesis, um, you know, we were asking the question of if we are to create a space for a psilocybin experience, how do we make that as uh, sort of beautiful and inspiring as possible? And so what we did with synthesis, and unfortunately, the retreats have now been on pause since the beginning of COVID. Um, I think we're going to get it up and going again relatively soon, but it's one of those situations where we're just keeping a pulse on um, the general news and whatnot. So while we were running retreats, we ran retreats for two years, from March 2018 to uh, March 2020. And what we learned was that to have a group size of, I would say, anywhere from 12 to 15 is optimal. To have three to four facilitators within that retreat is phenomenal. And to ensure that every participant who is coming in for the experience does the adequate preparation and integration as part of that. So the, the, the basic framework that we had set up 
was we were doing three-day and five-day retreat. For the three-day retreat, you would come in, you would have a one-on-one conversation with a facilitator there. Um, We would guide people through breath work. We would have meditation. We would do yoga. We would do incredible food. We had leased and rented out this beautiful church in the countryside of the Netherlands that had been built in the 1920s and it had been retrofitted with a sauna and apartments and a beautiful sanctuary. And so it was just like a stunning, stunning set and setting to have this incredibly profound experience. And then essentially we would assess, we would screen out all people who had clinical indications. So we were only doing this from from a wellness retreat perspective. And then we would bring people into oftentimes the most profound experience of their lives by giving them high doses of psilocybin truffles, which are legal in the Netherlands and guiding them through an incredible playlist uh, and making sure they feel they felt supported, they felt loved, they felt held as they were moving through this experience. And that was sort of, that was, that was inspired really from, um, in 2017, I was speaking at a few major tech conferences, South by Southwest, um, the Next Web, which is a major tech conference in Amsterdam. Um, there was one in the in the Switzerland as well. Uh, that was a that was a great conference, and um, we noticed that a lot of these folks who were coming to these business conferences were really interested in microdosing, were really interested in psychedelics, but the typical retreat, so to say, didn't really appeal to them of going to the ayahuasca. Uh, you know, centers in the in Iquitos, Peru, and sleeping in a tambo, and you know, not having running water. They wanted, I would say, a more sort of gentrified psychedelic experience. And so we thought, hey, let's put together something beautiful. What really became the gold standard for psilocybin retreats, and um, and and facilitate that. And now, with Oregon legalizing psilocybin therapy, we're moving into Oregon as part of that move initiative. We've also rolled out as part of Synthesis a training program for clinicians. So if someone has a clinical background and they want to work with psilocybin, we're training clinicians for that. And that has been then great to see how the space has evolved in that there's a really huge thirst for this level of training. And Synthesis is doing it with clinicians, with third wave, which I'm leading, we're doing it with coaches. So if you're a wellness coach, if you're a life coach, if you're an executive coach, and you're looking at psychedelics for leadership, creativity, flow, optimal well-being, we also now have a training program for that. And I think that to me now is, is my um, focus with my personal time is how can I train and help to train these sort of guides and leaders of tomorrow who will be providing coaching with a framework that's informed by uh, the psychedelic experience. Because I think this, this what I'll come back to and say, this truth of interconnectedness that we recognize through psychedelics, right? The interdependencies of everything. Um, that's what happens to us. That's what happens to our brain. That's what happens to our sense of self oftentimes. And that's how we have to live if we're to create this sort of regenerative um, world of tomorrow, right? We have to, we actually have to learn at a deep soul level, how do we live with nature and not against absolutely absolutely and especially you look at what we have going on now richard branson just had a space flight we have bezos and we have elon musk and we have all these ideas and the desire to become a space exploring space expanding into space race we better do it from a baseline where we can actually bring something good to wherever we go instead of just being the species that ravages everything, where it comes, you know, from where it comes from to the other places that, you know, we may reach. 
Um, I want to um, loop back to something that you mentioned. You talked about the truffles, which are legal in the, in the Netherlands and which you use at Synthesis. Um, and I, I would like to know how do they compare and contrast to, let's say, psilocybin cubensis mushrooms? It's a great question. So cubensis are the fruity body and truffles are basically think of them as like the the potato tube or the root system that's that's under right and so they'll form these little granules and you can pick those granules and you can you don't really pick them you dig them out i haven't cultivated them myself but you would dig them out and then um those can be sold legally the fruiting spores of fruity bodies of psilocybin mushrooms cannot necessarily the actual difference in terms of the experience itself is fairly negligible um truffles create more nausea Uh, there's more nausea-inducing stuff in them because they're not as digestible as the fruiting spores. Thank you, evolution. That, I think that was intentional. Um, and so it can be a bit like there's a little more nausea. It can be a bit more grounding, but I didn't find them to... It's it's not like an LSD versus psilocybin or it's not like an ayahuasca versus psilocybin. The difference is very um, small. And it's it, even the story of like, how psilocybin mushroom like because you used to be able to buy psilocybin mushrooms in the netherlands and then there was a really tragic accident that happened in the netherlands this was like 2008 2009 um so to appease the french government because it was a french tourist who died from taking mushrooms to appease the french government they made mushrooms the fruiting bodies illegal but to appease the dutch populace who really like to just be free they kept the truffles as available to sounds and so we <laughs> oh. and, and what's It's 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 brilliant and it's so yeah. Dutch too. If you know the Dutch, which you probably know the Dutch. Oh yeah, it and, it and like the Germans are a little too rule by the rule book to be able to go into that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But the Dutch are like they're 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 by the rule book enough that they can. There's that little loophole, and and it's because like to be honest, it's because not a lot of Dutch people actually really want to do this stuff. You yeah. know, it's like. It's legal, it's available, but maybe 4% of yeah, people have, have actually tried it. I think something that's also important to mention is that these are not um, substances uh, that it's, it's not necessarily a joyride. You hear from a lot of people that it's often hard work, uh, that you really get to explore and see yourself in ways that you haven't. The medicine points out, shows you where you need healing and helps you healing. And while it's gentle and loving, it can also be, you know, it can also be work. But, you know, a lot of people also say it's the great work. If you look at uh, the al alchemists of the days of old and the transforming lead to gold, ultimately it's a, a symbol for us, for our soul, for the ascension of our mind, our soul, our being. So it's uh, the great work in essence. Um, you wrote the book, Microdosing Psychedelics, A Practical Guide to Upgrade Your Life. How does microdosing upgrade our life? What is the potential there? That's a great question. So I like to think of it in terms of like a three-part series, right? So we have sort of the foundation, we have maybe the second stepping stone, and then we have the the cherry on top, so to say. So I think the the foundation of the the quote-unquote upgrade is is present awareness, right? And, and through microdosing, an intentional microdosing protocol, right, where there's journaling, there's meditation, you're doing it two or three times a week for maybe a month or two, right? There's a real commitment there. 
um, there always has to be that sort of meta cultivation of awareness and presence, uh, just bringing more mindfulness to everyday life. And, and, and microdosing helps with that in particular when it's done with meditation, because it amplifies neurogenesis mm-hmm. and particularly it amplifies the production of something called BDNF brain derived neurotropic factor, which is a precursor to neuroplasticity. So in bringing more awareness, then right, there's that, that base level of awareness that we're cultivating now in terms of what do you want to stack on top of that? So let's say we're coming at this from a more wellness perspective, right? Well, I think the next thing that I would look in terms of stacking on top of that general awareness is a daily, a, 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 a practice of bringing more awareness to the, the, let's say the diet that I, so a lot of people that I know um, have become ketogenic or have um, uh, gone into paleo or have even become something like vegan in other words, they've made a significant, are you vegan? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm AVAP. That's my own philosophy as vegan as possible. As I'll as possible. still have honey, uh, you know, probably a couple times a month. Um, every few years, I'll make an exception for fish or cheese. So it's, uh, I'm pretty much 97% plant-based, whole foods, plant-based and uh, yeah, very focused also on my biomarkers, my stats. So in a very conscious way. Because you can also get terribly sick, whether you're vegan or an omnivore or whatever. Well, precisely, right? But if, if, if there's an orientation towards healthy, towards nourishing, towards whole foods, right? Away from processed food, right? So let's say then someone someone has a high dose experience. And I know we're talking about microdosing, but the high dose is relevant. Someone has a high dose experience. They recognize that the reason they felt sick lately or feel sick consistently, or the reason they have an autoimmune condition is because they eat terrible, right? And so they make a commitment. They make a, they make a decision. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to clean up my diet, right? So they, 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 they're microdosing as part of the integration. They're bringing more awareness to that. And so the next thing that they lay on top of that would be, well, well, what's the commitment? that I make, you know, am I, am I saying no more processed food? Am I committing to a whole 30 where for 30 days I eat clean food? Am I committing to going vegan for 90 days? Right. There's that sort of orientation of now I'm going to take this aware awareness and I'm going to weave in a new way of being, I'm going to weave in a new way of being through that rewiring. Right. Specific. Well, then the final part on top of that is on a day-to-day basis, what choices are you making? Right. What decisions are you? Right. So then on a day-to-day basis, there has to be mindfulness. There has to be awareness brought to, okay, I'm making this decision. And so when we, when we microdose, there's less faltering, right? There's less wish washing. There's less of a, eh, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I do that. No, there's, there's a clear commitment and there's, there's sort of an energy behind it that allows you to make that clear. To, so then on a day-to-day basis, all these, what I would say, secondary choices that you're making, your primary choice was I'm changing, right? I'm becoming keto. I'm becoming vegan. That's the primary. The secondary choice then is what are all the little choices you're making along every single day to stick to that prime stick. To- and so microdosing, I think can help than to rewire the self, depending on which way, like it could be with meditation, it could be with relationships with your significant other, it could be, um, you know, business, it could be creativity, it could be leadership, right? The the intention can go any which way. When you have that fundamental foundation built of self-awareness though, and more mindfulness, then the choices that you make become that much clearer and easier about, okay, where do I want to direct this mm. energy of yeah. micro? And you mentioning leadership, uh, of course, there's, like you said, a ton of different ways uh, microdoses may be used. A lot of people use it, for example, for depression and anxiety or creativity. You can use it for a lot of different things. Um, how did it elevate you as a leader? So leadership 
comes down to there, there are two core things that sig- signify great. One is vision mm-hmm. and two is team. And there are, there are many others as well, but there's this fantastic book called Mastering Leadership. And it talks about from a statistical perspective, uh, both vision and teamwork have a p-value of like 0.9. So it's statistically very... And so when it comes to vision, what I often talk about as it relates to psychedelic subs is how they help with a process called divergent thinking, right? So so convergent thinking is what tobacco and um, coffee, caffeine help with. You have a rote list of things that you got to get done. Boom, boom, boom. Let's get those done. Divergent thinking is let's take two ideas that are seemingly not related and let's create a synthesis between the two to innovate on something, right? And I, and, and it's my strong belief that the leaders who can create the most compelling vision of things that speak to people at a soul level will be able to create basically the teams and missions of tomorrow. And so if that's informed, again, by this truth of interconnectedness that we learn from psychedelics, then that vision will be incredibly compelling and psychedelics can help with that, right? So for me, on a personal level, microdose and definitely high doses of psychedelics help with that ability to take a huge step back and look at everything, look at the 50,000 foot and clarify and architect the path forward for both myself and the businesses that I'm building. I think that's, that's, that's point number one. When it comes to teamwork, a huge part of teamwork is empathy. And in particular, I would say as a more active skill, listening. How do you listen? Who are you listening? How do you take feedback? How do you how do you take perspective? So again, what we know with something like psychedelic use is it helps with ego dissolution and ego rigidity in particular is responsible for a lot of, I would say, stubbornness and not listening and not good listening and not very good. But it gets things done and it gets things done fast. What psychedelics help with is they help the ego, I would say, to be chilled out a little bit. Uh-huh. And to be able to sit in a place of consideration, of reflection, of listening, of asking. And so from a leadership perspective, then if we're looking at how do we cultivate a phenomenal team, it, particularly in, in a place that, you know, in an environment that is increasingly remote, then so much of that is the ability to listen and the ability to weave the the all the perspectives of the team members that you have into a cohesive mission that everyone can get behind. That doesn't mean every decision every person can get behind, but that the the mission, the vision, the things that you are aiming towards, everyone can get behind as we're all in this together moving towards this North Yeah. So those are, those are the two ways I usually like to. Beautiful. And uh, yeah, I love uh, what you also said about what it does with regards to the ego rigidity uh, oftentimes, this type of rigidity also keeps us to go back to another topic, which is healing. Uh, you know, there's the ego rigidity, there's fear, and a lot of these psychedelics uh, seem to be able to enable us to let go of certain ways of emotionally reacting to memories or experiences. Um, I'm, for example, really excited. I will have my first ketamine treatment tomorrow. And uh, it's oh, tomorrow. Uh, Yes, tomorrow morning I'll have my first ketamine treatment. IV or IM or IV, IV, and so I am having a set of two treatments: one tomorrow morning, the next the following morning, and then a week later on two subsequent days the same thing. And uh, for me personally, there's a few reasons why I felt compelled to do that. Uh, One one of them is I've just been dealing with anxiety for all of my life. I've learned how to manage the symptoms really, really well in these last 10, 15 years. Uh, However, managing symptoms and actually healing the root cause 
are two different things. You can weave them together. I love your use of the word, by the way, weaving things together. Everything is connected. And I'd like to hear your take about, you know, what do you think are the pros and cons of ketamine becoming more available to the public now? That's a good question. So I think the con is similar to cannabis in that it has fairly addictive tendencies. Um, I don't think cannabis is as addictive as ketamine, but ketamine can, can be quite addictive as a substance. The classic psychedelic psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, mescaline, uh, San Pedro, Iboga, these are not, none of them are, are addictive. Uh, they're anti-addictive, but ketamine has a bit of an addictive flair. Um, I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like clinic and institutions versus you know non-clinic. I think it's smart to keep ketamine within an explicitly clinical situation. Yeah. Um, I think it's very useful for that. It's legal when done with um, psychotherapy, something mm. called ketamine-assisted psychotherapy cap. It's shown statistically shown to be just as effective as something like psilocybin or MDMA at healing uh, depression. And it also helps significantly with suicidality. So I think the pro is it's the best medicine that's currently legally available on a widespread basis for particularly depression. Um, and the the con is, and I've seen this in some of my personal circles, more and more people are, are using it outside of a clinical setting and becoming increasingly disassociated and addicted to it. And so it certainly has a dark side and so it's really good to be mindful of when you're using it, how you're using it, how often you're using it. I tend to use it maybe once every two or three months. It's a nice, it's a, I've done lozenge form. I've done IV. I've also done a suppository, which is another story for another time and super interesting in itself. Um, but my preference tends to be more for microdosing psilocybin relatively consistently LSD every now and then, or doing high dose psilocybin journey. Mm. Uh, that tends to be more my. Yeah. Well, excellent. Thank you for your perspective there. I have one more question. You spoke about the U S and legalization here and uh, you know, what your vision for the future is here. Uh, I know you also have a really great grasp of what's happening in Europe. Uh, so what do you think, what's your vision for the future? Where do you think psychedelics will be in five years U S Europe, what are we going to see happening? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in five years, which would put us at 2026, you'll have thousands of ketamine clinics that are both in the uh, North America and the EU. Yeah. Because they're already doing clinical work with ketamine, I assume by 2026, psilocybin and MDMA will both be medically available. So they'll also work with psilocybin and MDMA. So you'll have these clients that have a three that have basically a core approach of integrative psych psychiatry or integrative psychotherapy with ketamine, MDMA, or psilocybin as uh, the catalyst. I think what you'll also see is you'll see widespread drug decriminalization. Um, and you'll also see specific states like Oregon already has legalized, um, you know, psilocybin in particular for therapy. Um, and and I, I, I spoke at length on this earlier, but I think the um, it's not either or, it will be both and. So we will have thousands of clinics where people can go in for clinical purposes to make this happen. We'll also have hundreds, if not thousands of retreat centers. And my anticipation is that the centers, retreat centers that arise to facilitate these medicine experience will also be sort of these new churches and new communities that form mm -hmm. from that. And, and they will start to become these sort of places that people go to charge back up, if you will. Um, to reconnect with community, to reconnect with the earth uh, before they go back out and need to do the work that needs to get done to create this new sort of emerging world that 
Mm. will address a lot of these existential crises. So I think psychedelics will be probably the most critical tools over the next decade that are widely used to help facilitate this experience and will condense time in such a way that we can address a lot of the systemic issues that we're faced with um, without, you know, hundreds of millions of people potentially. Outstanding. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing your vision there. And I'd like to add on, you know, uh, there's this thing called the stoned ape hypothesis uh, in his book, Food of the Gods. Uh, Terrence McKenna actually proposed that the transformation from humans, early ancestors to the species Homo sapiens uh, mainly had to do with uh, uh, the ingestion of the mushroom psilocybe cubensis in the diet. And according to him, this took place about 100,000 years BCE. And maybe we are at another threshold of humanity now when we you know, integrate these uh, substances into our lives that can help us evolve further and probably beyond anything that we can even begin to imagine right now. Paul, um, there is a question I ask every guest I have on the show, and I'd love for you if you have some to share with us the practices that most profoundly have affected your life positively, mentally, spiritually, physically, of course, microdosing is one of them. Uh, but is there anything else you could share with our audience? That's a great tool for elevating yourself. Meditation has has been absolutely the 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 sort of keystone habit and the thing I consistently come back to to help with with balance. Uh, travel. We didn't talk about it a lot in the actual podcast besides the Tanzania story, but uh, travel, exploration, adventure. You know, really pushing boundaries that way in in, in a more unconventional way. I love that. I, I love to travel. And then, um, and then I would say, I would say the, the, the final thing. So there's, um, meditation, there's travel and then being vigilant even about diet and sleep. Mm. So really protecting my sleep, you know, getting to bed at 10 PM, you know, no later than 10 30, um, consistently getting up at the same time. And then just being very mindful about the food that I eat. My Outstanding. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your journey, your wisdom with us. People who want to learn more about you and your mission, where can they find you? How can they reach out? So paulaustin.co is my personal website. The thirdwave.co is Third Wave's website. And then I'm on socials at paulaustin3w. You can find me on Instagram. Excellent. It's really been very enlightening and inspiring to talk with you. I'm super grateful you made time for us today. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the Superhumanized podcast. Thank you. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.